Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a leader in oncology research with five new FDA-approved medicines in the last four years. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about sickle cell disease with Dr. John Roberts. Dr. Roberts is a professor of internal medicine and the medical director of the adult sickle cell program at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery. So, John, let's start by talking about what exactly is sickle cell disease. Uh, Sickle cell disease is an inherited disease of the blood. Uh, Red blood cells, which turn the blood red and carry oxygen, normally are round and very flexible, and so they can wind their way through very small blood vessels. In sickle cell disease, uh, the red blood cells assume a rigid shape of a sickle, and these rigid sickle-shaped cells can cause obstructions in the small blood vessels because they get tangled up one with another and with other blood cells. And that obstruction leads to a failure for blood to flow into the tissues beyond the obstruction, and that leads to a loss of oxygen, which leads to a bunch of problems. Okay. So you mentioned that it's genetic. Tell me a little bit more about that. Who gets this? Okay. So in the United States, this is really a legacy of the African slave trade. Sickle cell disease is a mutation that arose historically in Africa and also probably in the Middle East or India. Um, It's a disease where uh, both the mother and the father have to carry at least the trait of the disease, but they're usually not sick. Um, But if the mother and the father, uh, their child, if the child gets the sickle gene from both the mother and the father, then the child has two of the sickle genes and all all the red cells they make are prone to sickling. And so whereas the mother and father are not ill, the child is very ill. And indeed, in, in Africa today, most of these children die before the age of five of infections. And so how is that picked up? I mean, is it like the mother's fine, the father's fine, they have a baby. And how do you discover that the baby inherited both of these genes and their blood sickles? Well, that's a very good question. Actually, since the late 1980s, uh, in this country, we have neonatal testing or newborn testing. So before a baby is discharged from the nursery, um, the doctors do a pinprick on the heel and get a, a drops of blood on a piece of paper, and that piece of paper is sent to a lab, and they can test for 60 or 70 different uh, genetic diseases. Uh, Where the system falls down in the United States is that that information is then transmitted to the pediatrician who checked the baby out of the newborn nursery, but that may not be the pediatrician that the mother takes the child to for well baby care, uh, or the the notification may get lost. And so although everyone who's born in Connecticut uh, in the last 30 years has had tests testing for sickle cell disease, uh, many people are not aware of their status. Uh, it, uh, it, as I said, predominantly affects people of uh, African heritage. And so for people who identify as African-Americans, probably one in 10 carries the gene, but they, they're not sick. But that means that if one of those people, one of those one in 10 who carries the gene has children with another person, one in 10 who carries the gene, then there's a chance that their offspring will have the disease. So you're telling me that every child has got this test before they leave the nursery, 
So every child will have been tested. And presumably the reason why we test these children is to know about this so that hopefully there's something we can do about it. Um, but nobody checks the results before they leave the nursery? The no results are not available. Remember, they're doing 60 or 70 tests. These are sent off to a reference laboratory. And so the results are not available for weeks at a time. I don't know the exact time frame. And so the baby's long gone from the hospital. Uh, and then it becomes... Uh, the responsibility of the system to get the information to the, the baby's mother. Uh, and often that's successful, but sometimes it's not. Wow. There, I... are, there may be some technical problems with the test, too. It may not be 100% effective, but it's a very effective test for identifying people, uh, newborns, with the trait or the disease. And uh, to the extent that people don't know their status, it's a, it's a failure of the system to follow up with that information. Right. Because you would think that if the test didn't take quite so long to get done, that parents could be notified of that before they left the hospital and presumably plugged into the right kind of resources that can help with this disease. Uh, people are aware of the problem, but one of the proposed solutions has, that I'm aware of has not been to have, more, have a more rapid turnaround time on the test. I think because of the complexity of doing the test and the need to batch the tests so that they can be inexpensively run and the fact that they're doing multiple tests. But uh, so... Um, that's not one of the solutions that I've heard discussed. Yeah. And I mean, I think for our listeners, at least in the current environment, I suppose it's important to be aware that these tests are being done so that you can follow up with the hospital or the nursery or your doctor or somebody to say, hey, did you get all the tests done on my baby? And is there anything I should be concerned about? Yes. Uh, I haven't seen what these reports look like because I'm not a pediatrician. But the, my understanding is the reports go from the state lab to the pediatrician that the state identifies as being the pediatrician for that child. Of course, the pediatrician who's discharging a newborn from the nursery may not be the pediatrician, may not even be in the pediatrician group that's actually going to care for the child on the outpatient basis. And so the, the difficulty is tracking down the right pediatrician and then having them track down that report. But in principle, that could be done. That's amazing. It, it is, it is mind-boggling to me that, um, that that's the case. Um, but in any event, I, I think that for our listeners, um, you should know that your baby, if you have a baby in the state of Connecticut, is having a bunch of tests done that you might want to know the answers to. And so uh, we don't know how long those tests take, but presumably within a month or so, um, if you haven't heard back about the results of all of those tests, you may want to call the hospital. Make sure that you have your pediatrician's name on that report and or get the report yourself so that you know the health of your baby. Yes. But let's get back to talking about sickle cell. Let's suppose that you actually do find out that your baby has sickle cell disease. So your baby has all of their red blood cells or sickling. Well, actually, although we can determine that an infant has sickle cell disease or sickle cell trait with a blood test drawn as a newborn, the disease doesn't manifest itself. People, babies don't get sick until they're about nine months of age, somewhere between nine, nine months of year and age. And that's because the blood is changing. There are two kinds of blood in uh, human development. There's a baby kind of blood, an adult kind of blood. And the, when the babies are born, they're in the midst of transitioning from the baby kind to the adult kind. It's, they only develop problems with sickling when they've transitioned completely to the adult kind of blood, which actually occurs in the first year of life, even though it's called the adult kind of blood. So what typically happens 
in a child who hasn't been diagnosed or what what parents may be aware of in a child who has been diagnosed with sickle cell disease is episodes of pain. And that may manifest as just crankiness, uh, failure to nurse, um, failure to go to sleep, uh, irritability. There also may be visible, obvious signs of inflammation. For example, the hands and fingers can swell up like little red-hot sausages. Uh, and that's a sign of sickle cell disease. The first sign may be an infection. Of course, Infants without sickle cell disease can develop infections, but children with sickle cell disease are more likely to develop infections like pneumonia uh, associated with fevers. And so for any of those things, it would be appropriate for the uh, parent to take the child either to the pediatrician's office or to the emergency room, depending on how acute the situation and what time of day this occurs. So let's suppose that the system was actually fixed mm -hmm. such that you knew whether your baby had sickle cell disease or not at the time that they left the nursery. Mm -hmm. And granted that they're not going to have any problems until nine months mm -hmm. later when they transition over to having, quote, adult type of blood. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that can be done to prevent all of those issues, the issues of inflammation, the issues of infection, the issues of pain, presumably because, you know, blood is sickling and oxygen isn't getting to the tissues where it needs to get to. Is there something that can be done proactively if you know that your child has this problem to prevent them from getting all of these downstream issues? Yes, indeed there is. Um, it's not a cure, but it's a preventative. And of course, before a child gets to be nine months of age, the parent should have taken them to the pediatrician for the normal series of baby shots, which started about two months of age. And so there would be multiple opportunities there for the pediatrician to educate the mother about what the manifestations of sickle cell disease are, how, how the mother might learn that the kid was sick, and what, they sh what she should do in those situations. There's a medicine called hydroxyurea, and pediatricians are increase increasingly recommending that babies start that drug uh, who have sickle cell disease. And so they might typically start a baby on that drug at nine months of age. Um, and that drug can dramatically reduce the probability, the, uh, the problems of sickle cell disease. So uh, an infant put on hydroxyurea at nine months of age might live out their entire childhood without ever having to have an acute care visit for problems related to sickle cell disease. Uh, on the other hand, it's not a perfect medication, and those children likely would have one or two problems, but many fewer problems they would have had if they were not on the hydroxyurea. And so, and so it can prevent the kind of severity, I suppose, of these episodes, but they still have blood cells that sickle. Yes. And so they still can get issues. Yes. And so if you have those issues, right, like so my understanding is the blood sickles so then it can block off the blood vessels so then oxygen can't get to tissues where it needs to get to. Right. Which is bad. Yeah. Um, so what do you do about that in an acute crisis? Like, I mean, if your fingers are swelling up like sausages, that doesn't sound like it's a good thing, John. Uh, for the acute crisis, we generally just treat uh, infants or adults with uh, pain medicines and uh, a lot of fluids to uh, uh, so we don't want people to be dehydrated and have the cells trying to get through the blood circulation in, in narrowed uh, sticky blood. On the other hand, we don't. We're, there's research going on to find medicines that will uh, interrupt the acute crisis, but we don't have those medicines available yet. Uh, sometimes 
people are transfused at that time, particularly if their red blood cell count is very low. But there's a danger if someone is going to have a lot of those episodes, if we give them blood transfusions every time they have an episode, you, we get into long-term problems with repeatedly exposing people to other people's bloods, problems with uh, where the, the, the patient gets to a state where their body recognizes blood from other people and, and the, the white blood cells in the patient eat up the red blood cells from the donated blood, and then we can't transfuse people effectively. So for the acute episode, uh, the primary treatment is hydration and pain management. So really just kind of symptomatic, kind of help the patient get through the pain, help them to be well hydrated and wait and see. Yes, that's correct. One would think that if oxygen isn't getting to tissues because it's blocked off because of these sickled cells, tissues could die. Yes. And you could end up with like, I could I could think like if you had blood not getting to your kidneys, you could go into kidney failure. Or if blood's not getting to your lungs, you could have difficulty oxygenating other tissues. Or if blood's not getting to your heart, that you could end up with heart dysfunction. What about all of that? Well, you're you're right on target. This, although we think of it as a blood disease and it's commonly cared for by hematologists, in fact, it affects the blood vessels and then the organs of the entire body, and so it can affect the brain, the eyes, uh, the lungs, uh, the liver, the kidneys, the spleen, uh, the skin. Um, and so it's, it's in all of its manifestations, it's a devastating systemic disease. And even today, people in the United States typically live into their 40s, uh, but they are unlikely to live past 50. Oh, wow. Well, we have to take a short break for a medical minute on that very somber note. But please stay tuned to learn more about sickle cell disease with my guest, Dr. John Roberts. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. Addressing cancer takes a whole community. To celebrate the real difference makers, AstraZeneca is introducing Your Cancer. Learn more at yourcancer.org. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. John Roberts. We're talking about sickle cell disease. Now, right before the break, John, you were saying, we were talking about how sickle cell disease is this disease where the red blood cells sickle. And essentially, they block off blood vessels so that oxygen can't get to tissues. And you end up with all kinds of end organ issues, whether it's in your brain or your eyes or your lungs or your liver or your spleen or your kidneys. And this is really a devastating thing. One of the things that you said right before the break that I found dramatic was that very few people live beyond the age of 40 or 50. Is that right? Uh, 
beyond, beyond the age of 50 is uncommon. It's not rare. I mean, I have patients in my clinics who are in their 50s and 60s, but I have many, many more patients who are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And when our patients unfortunately die, they're often in their 20s or 30s or early 40s. So it's a devastating disease. There's no question about it. And they die because of all of that end organ They issue. died because of complications in organs other than the blood, typically. So they die of strokes or heart failure um, or kidney failure uh, or overwhelming infections. And, and we talked about the fact that, you know, all babies in Connecticut are diagnosed or at least have a test uh, to see whether or not they have this disease. But, but what we said was that really... You know, the treatment was kind of symptomatic, pain management, fluids. There's got to be something that we can do to prevent this devastating disease from killing off people. Is there no cure? Is there no treatment that will make your cells not sickle? There are a few more things that we can do now, and there are some exciting possibilities uh, in the future. So uh, the only curative therapy we have for sickle cell disease now is a bone marrow transplant. That involves uh, giving the patient, the, the person with sickle cell disease, strong chemotherapy-type medicines to sort of kill off their own bone marrow cells where the red blood cells are made, and then infusing into that person bone marrow cells that have been harvested from a donor. Uh, and those uh, donor blood cells infused into the person who had sickle cell disease, as they grow up, the person becomes somebody who no longer has sickle cell disease because they're operating off the blood system that they got from the donor who was healthy. Uh, there are a number of problems with this. One, there's some risk with the procedure. Uh, two, the best outcomes are when the donor is both a full sibling, uh, brother, sister of the patient, and also uh, is what we call a complete match, which is uh, we can look at certain proteins that are expressed on the blood cells of the donor and the patient, and we want those to match up. And if they don't match up, the prospects are much, much less favorable for the outcome. Only about one in five people with sickle cell disease in the country have an appropriate sibling potential donor. Uh, so it's not going to be able to cure most people because only one out of five people are even a candidate. But it's being used in many fewer than one out of five patients. And so one of the agendas, of particularly the pediatric blood community, hematology community, is to talk more with parents about the possibility of a bone marrow transplant for their children. Now, we can do bone marrow transplants with donated red blood cells that come from a non-relative. Um, but there are more risks involved with that, and I would consider that to be a research procedure. And actually at Yale, in the pediatric hematology department, Dr. Nikita Shaw is participating in research studies of uh, bone marrow transplant for sickle cell disease involving um, unrelated donors. And so she's done transplants on uh, eight persons with sickle cell disease in the last year or so, the last several years, and several of those were in people who did have a, a, a brother or sister who was a donor, but also some of those were in people who did not have a complete donor. Now, gene therapy is another exciting thing, and there was a report a couple of years ago of a patient in France who was cured of gene, with gene therapy for sickle cell disease, but most people feel it's not quite ready for prime time. There are a lot of concerns about what the potential risks and downstream effects of gene therapy may be. Uh, there was an episode about 20 years ago when we were curing acute leukemia with gene therapy, and then unfortunately in two or three years, those children would then come down with another kind of leukemia. Um, 
and we don't want that to happen with sickle cell disease. Then there are a number of drugs which are sort of like the hydroxyurea that I talked about, which sort of modify the, ravis the, the uh, ravishing, ravishes of the disease, but they don't really make the disease go away. And a lot of these are be being developed now by uh, drug companies, and it's a very exciting time because some of these drugs, I think, are going to be very good, but they're not yet available yet. We don't have any of those research studies, but at the University of Connecticut, Dr. Brianne Namirian will be opening a study of one of these very promising new drugs in just the next few months. Uh, and then there are other approaches to potentially cure the disease with either different types of gene therapy. Dr. Peter Glazier at Yale's Department of Therapeutic Radiology is actually interested in gene therapy uh, with a totally novel approach using uh, uh, drugs which are designed by him in conjunction with people at Yale Bioengineering. Um, and there are other approaches to drugs that would change. Would, actually, I talked earlier about the baby hemoglobin one sickle. Actually, get, the baby hemoglobin gene is still in the person. And if we could just get the baby hemoglobin gene active again in adults with sickle cell disease, we could greatly reduce the impact of the disease. So there's a lot of promising research avenues being explored now, much more than was true 10 or 15 years ago. And I think things are going to be delivered to the clinic in the next 5 to 15 years. It's an exciting time, but it's still a very challenging time with people who are living day to day with the problem of sickle cell disease. So it's great to hear that there are actually options. Um, but just to go back through some of those, so so the bone marrow transplant, I mean, that's something that we, we've heard about that, that has been used in cancers, for example. And But uh, one would think that in sickle cell disease, being a genetic condition, the fact that you got sickle cell disease meant that both of your parents had a sickle cell trait. And so you happen to get the sickle cell gene from both of your parents. And so you would have to have a sibling who got the other non-sickle cell gene from both the parents. Is it possible to get a bone marrow transplant from a sibling who had sickle cell trait, um, who maybe got a sickle cell gene from one parent, but not from the other parent, so they're not going to manifest any of the symptoms, that's better than having sickle cell disease. That's been tried, but for reasons that I don't understand, it has not been especially successful, and so it's not recommended. There may be research centers that are trying that on a research basis now, but as a standard off-the-shelf treatment, it's not offered. Hmm. And then the other thing is, you know, with regards to unrelated people, What's the issue with that? Why is that just something that you would do on research? And I, I get that it might not be ideal, but, you know, we we transplant, for example, entire organs, right? We, we give people heart transplants and liver transplants from completely unrelated people, um, and people then can live after needing these organs. So how come we can't do that with bone marrow in sickle cell? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. So when we're dealing with a child or uh, adolescent with sickle cell disease, we're talking about giving them a curative therapy with a transplant so that their life will be better. But if we don't do the curative therapy, they are likely to live into their 30s or 40s, maybe their 40s. If we do do the transplant therapy, there is always a risk with a transplant that people will die of complications of the transplant. Now, with changes in the way we do transplants, if we do it with an ideal donor, that is a full sibling who is a, a complete match, 
basically people shouldn't die of the transplant procedure anymore. And we've, we've known that for a few years now. But if we do that with an unrelated donor, it remains the case that the risk of dying of complications of the, of the procedure is in the range of 5%, maybe 10%. And so it's tough to sell parents on a procedure that potentially would allow their, life, their child to live a normal lifespan, but on the other hand, might cause their death in the next few months, whereas otherwise they would live into their 20s, 30s, or 40s. It's a very difficult decision for people to make. Well, could 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 you not delay that until people were in their 20s, 30s, 40s and looking at imminent demise anyways? You know, they've they've graduated college, they've started their career. And, you know, most people are not going to make it, although you've had some patients make it into their 50s and 60s. And they're thinking to themselves, you know, geez, a 5 percent chance of death from a potentially curative treatment. Might not be so bad if you're telling me that I've got a, I don't know what the percentage is, chance of dying in the next year or two anyway. Well, I've had two patients in my practice who were in their early 20s go for transplants in the last few years. So that does happen. Um, on the other hand, the older a person is, the more likely that they have now accumulated damage to, mm-hmm. again, the brain, the lung, the heart, the liver, the kidneys. And so, and the spleen, and so the risks of the transplant are higher uh, because the transplant is it's a pretty dramatic thing that we put people through. And so, uh, as people age, the risk either doctors may no longer offer it or the risk of bad outcomes goes up a little bit. And just going up a little bit is enough to, to turn people off. And then, as you think about it from a psychological standpoint, uh, as a senior, when I think, well, if I was in college and I had sickle cell disease, I'd probably finish college and then I'd go get a transplant. When I was in college, I wasn't particularly thinking about preventing things that would happen to me 20 or 30 years this from now. This is true. This is true. And I suppose the other thing is if you're getting somebody else's bone marrow, even if you're a perfect match, do you still need to be on some sort of immunosuppressant just so that you don't reject their bone marrow? Yes, that's a good point. I hadn't raised that. But um, everybody is on immunosuppressants. Uh, immediately after the transplant, and most people remain on some kind of immunosuppression for the rest of their life. Which isn't so much fun anyways. Correct. So that might be another downside. Now, then you talked about gene editing. Now, tell us more about what exactly that is, because, you know, there there are stories about people messing with people's genes and designer babies, and that's all kind of getting a little a little out there. How exactly does gene editing work? I mean, is this a therapy that is actually in practice now? Um, Tell me more. So there are sort of three things you can do from a genetic standpoint. One is you can just add a normal gene. And so now the person's – and the way you usually get that normal gene into the person's uh, baby red blood cells, the bone marrow cells are going to make the adult red blood cells, is with a virus which infects the red blood cells. So you package in the virus in a test tube, you package in the virus a normal gene, and then you inject the virus into the person's body, and the virus goes all over their body, but it gets into the uh, bone marrow cells and infects the bone marrow cells. And then inside the red blood – the bone marrow cells, the gene will – get out of the virus, and it'll be expressed, and so now you'll be making normal hemoglobin and sickle hemoglobin at the same time, and that person would look to a hematologist like somebody who had sickle cell trait, because right. if you analyze their cells, some of them are going to sickle and some of them are not. 
One of the disadvantages of that is that the virus can also insert itself in a lot of other places in the genetic, in the normal genetic material. And as I mentioned earlier, we're concerned that that virus insertion in other places could make other genes run amok and cause problems like cancer. Mm. Then the second way you can do it is to actually, as you say, edit it. So you can, using a thing called CRISPR technology, try and, again, you have to send it into the cells mainly with a virus. You send it in the cells, and what you're sending in is an editing machinery that is supposed to go exactly to where the abnormal gene is and cut out the abnormal gene and put in uh, the, a replacement gene, which is normal. Uh, that's not been successful in humans that I'm aware of yet, although, uh, and uh, there's also a concern that it may do this not only in the right place, but also in some other places which are not the right place. And again, we're concerned that that could make other genes go awry. Uh, and then the third way would be to somehow, as I mentioned earlier, genetically fool the bone marrow cells to go back to producing the baby hemoglobin. And the advantage of that would be that um, uh, it would be a normal gene being produced. And the problems with that has been it's technically been difficult to do, and you might unleash a bunch of other genes being expressed, which we don't want to be expressed in adult life. So, you know, have abnormal tissue growth and stuff like that. So these, I think most people think these are all soluble problems, but they've not been solved to date. And so then the third bucket of, of possible solutions to sickle cell disease, which now after thinking about the disadvantages of the other two might be the most promising is our new drugs. Um, but these drugs are not perfect. So we have two kinds of drugs. We have drugs which are supposed to sort of allow the body to put up with the sickling cells better. And we have drugs which are actually supposed to cause the expression of the baby hemoglobin. And the, the baby hemoglobin drugs are harder to design but would be more of a home run. The manage the, the bandage drugs, put a bandaid on it, are going to be here very quickly, but they're not going to do so much. Dr. John Roberts is a professor of internal medicine and the medical director of the Adult Sickle Cell Program at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.